1: Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We continue looking at a book by Tad R. Callister. He wrote The Infinite Atonement. The foreword was written by Robert L. Millett, which tells me a lot because a lot of the things that Tad Callister has to say in this book about the Mormon view of the atonement is, in my opinion, very traditional. And oftentimes, Robert L. Millett is touted by some as being a little more progressive in his theology, sounding much more like an evangelical. Now, I don't hold that position personally, but it is interesting that Robert L. Millett would put his name on this book as someone who supports the teachings in it. As we've been bringing out, Callister is very traditional in his understanding of Mormon theology when it comes to how you get the benefits of the atonement of Christ as a Latter-day Saint. I gave his credentials yesterday, and today I want to repeat the fact that this book is one of the few books written by a person in the Mormon Church that has been given the leather-bound status. In other words, this book was published in 2006 with a leather-binding that's not something that Deseret Book often does. In other words, for a book to get a leather binding by Deseret Book, this book has to have some theological significance to it. So this is not something that can be sidestepped or ignored, and I think this is why a lot of Latter-day Saints have spoken of this book with much approval. The problem, of course, is Are these same people that approve of this book really doing what Tad Callister says must be done in order to receive the benefits of the atonement? And that's what we're looking at today. In yesterday's show, we ended with Callister citing on page 176, Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, verse 31 and 32, where Callister says, While the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, he has nonetheless promised he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven.
2: Oh, that's all you have to do is just keep all the commandments.
1: It sounds pretty simple when you put it in a one-line sentence. The problem, of course, is you have to look at the Mormon definition of that word repentance. And this is what we're talking about. Repentance in Mormonism is a confession of sin and a forsaking of sin, never to repeat the sin again. So you must not only stop Doing all the things that are wrong, you must continually do everything that is right. And that, of course, becomes problematic when we look at sinful humankind. And this would include even Latter day Saints that are trying very hard to be the best they can possibly be. How does Calister explain this true repentance in his book, Eric?
2: He writes on page 178 it is a burning resolve to make amends with God at any cost. Such a change means, quote, we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually, end quote. And that's from Mosiah chapter 5, verse 2.
1: And if he's interpreting Mosiah 5.2 from the Book of Mormon, where it says we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually, as merely a desire, or as I would understand repentance to be, a change of heart to do what is right, I don't really have a problem with that kind of interpretation of Mosiah 5.2. But if you're going to take that and draw the conclusion that the people who said that in the Book of Mormon never sinned again or never had any desire to do evil ever again, that's where I would have a problem because I don't think any human being comes to that point. It's one thing to have a desire not to do evil. Yeah, sure. As Christians, we should have a desire not to do evil. We should have a desire to do good continually But sometimes desire and sometimes the actions of the person who has that desire are not always one and the same.
2: On page 179, he says, repeatedly throughout the scriptures, repentance is associated with the heart. It is a new heart, a broken heart, a changed heart, a contrite heart. And you mentioned last week, Bill, about the issue of most Mormons, do they take this as seriously as what Callister is talking about? Do they go to their church services with red eyes because they've been crying all night in sadness about their sins and repenting sincerely that they're not going to do those things again?
1: And the reason why I brought that up in last week's shows is because that's kind of how Spencer Kimball does explain it. (laughs) He says there's suffering when it comes into this repentance Kimball, in his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, makes it very clear that there's quite a high bar. If a Mormon is to truly prove himself as one who is renouncing his sins, how does Kimball explain that in his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness?
2: Pages 354-355, the former transgressor must have reached a point of no return to sin, wherein there is not merely a renunciation of the sin, where the sin becomes most distasteful to him and where the desire or urge to sin is cleared out of his life.
1: Now, that desire or urge to sin being cleared out of his life. and Now, you might say, well, isn't that basically what Mosiah 5.2 is saying that Callister cites before? I don't know. I don't think that's the same description being given here, because the desire or urge to sin must be cleared out of his life. That's not really the same as saying you have no more of a desire or disposition to do evil but to do good continually. There's a big difference between what I see in Mosiah 5.2 and what Kimball is implying here on pages 354 and 355 of his book, The Miracle of
2: Forgiveness. On page 180, Callister writes, There cannot simultaneously be repentance and rationalization rationalization is the world's answer to sin, repentance is the Lord's. How many times on the streets, Bill, we ask Latter-day Saints if they are doing everything that's been commanded of them, and what do we oftentimes get as a response? I'm trying my best, I'm doing everything I possibly can, and Spencer Kimball... Address that in his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, pages 164 and 165, and he says that trying is not sufficient, nor is repentance complete when one merely tries to abandon sin. To try is weak, to do the best you can is not strong. You must always do better than you can. People are good at rationalizing their sin, and according to Mormonism, that's not going to be good enough.
1: Callister seems to understand, I think, what Kimball wants to get across in his book, because as you said, It's not merely a desire or a wanting to change, it's an absolute change, and it has to be in every area of your life, Kimball said. But when you look at Ted Callister's book, he seems to say pretty much the same thing, but in a different way. For instance, when I see what he writes on page 186, under a subheading, an absolute forsaking, but repentance requires more than sorrow, True repentance requires an absolute forsaking. And I think that's exactly what Kimball was trying to get across in his book. But if you go to the bottom of page 186 in the book The Infinite Atonement by Tad Callister, he raises this question. But for how long must I forsake? I think that's a fair question. It's a question that you and I have asked on the streets many times. But look at the way Callister responds to that. He says, the answer is always the same. When there is a mighty change of heart and a new mind to make the Lord's will supreme in our lives, regardless of our own passionate desires, when there is an unequivocal resolve to put behind us our former ways, there is a measuring rod, but it is one primarily of attitude, not time. He's implying here that, of course, you're supposed to be doing this perpetually from the time you've made that decision till the time you die. And again, we would ask how many Latter-day Saints, as sincere as they may be, are doing that. But then he goes on, page 192, he refers to Naaman the Syrian, talked about in 2 Kings.
2: Naaman the leper went to the prophet Elisha, seeking to be healed. We might wonder what would have happened if Naaman the Syrian had dipped himself three times in the river Jordan and then abandoned the cause. Would he be three sevens clean? Or what if he had dipped himself six times and given up? Would he be six sevens clean? We know the answer. The cleansing came only after the seventh dipping, after total submission to the word of God. And then what a cleansing followed. The scriptures record, quote, his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, end quote. And that's from 2 Kings 5.14. So it is with the sinner, the spiritual leper. There must be a total submissiveness to the will of the Lord, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, even confession if necessary to complete the seventh dipping, and then the spirit is made clean like unto the spirit of a little child.
1: I I have a, a problem when someone takes passages from the Bible that have a specific meaning. And in this case, it was a physical healing for Naaman the Syrian, a physical healing. Now, he can try and liken that to a spiritual cleansing, But I think you're going to run into problems using this story in a case like that. Because it's right. He had to dip seven times in the River Jordan. At first, he was pretty upset about that. Because the River Jordan isn't one of the most cleanest of rivers. So he gives other rivers. Why couldn't I go there where it was much cleaner? So he's complaining about the formula that God is going to use to bring about a physical healing in his life. But to say that an individual, in order to get a spiritual cleansing, has to do exactly what Naaman did to get his physical cleansing, I think is taking the passages and stretching them way beyond what was intended. Certainly you have to have a desire to be clean. Certainly you have to submit to the Lord in what he asks in order for that cleansing. But nowhere do we find in the New Testament all these long lists of things that must be done in order to get the forgiveness of your sins. It's made very simple, according to Paul, and that is we are justified, forgiven, made right. How? By our faith in what Jesus did for us. All the things that he is listing here and what he does throughout this book would be under the classification of sanctification, certainly A believer should have a desire to live a life differently than the way they lived it before, but changing your ways is a part of sanctification. It's not what justifies the believer at the very beginning of their spiritual walk.
2: Mormonism makes the same mistake that all religions do, that you have to do something in order to receive God's favor, but Christianity, according to what the Bible says, is a description of who you are. And what you do is a relationship of who you are. It's living out what God has given to you. It's uh, called in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. But you can never put the good works and all of the good things that you do ahead of the idea that we're we're saved by grace alone and not by works. I think
1: some Latter-day Saints would accuse us of nitpicking, because we certainly do believe that there is a faith unto works. They would argue, well, we have the same thing. But no, they don't. And I think Callister brings it out very well in this book. It's not the same thing. When you think, as I mentioned yesterday, that you have to add anything to what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary in order to receive the forgiveness of your sins, what you've just said there is that what Jesus did was not enough. There was something that was lacking in that sacrificial act that he made on behalf of his people on the cross at Calvary. It's blasphemous to say that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough to save his people from their sins. And that is exactly what Mormonism does teach. And I think that's exactly what Tad Callister is implying in his book.